Hey everyone, and welcome to Don't Call Me Buddy. This is a podcast that's meant to expose you to topics you may have never considered, rethink the norm, and question who we are as human beings floating through space. But before we talk about those big, thought-provoking issues, we need to set some ground rules. And the only ground rule is that you can't call the other person buddy. Now with that out of the way, let's introduce today's topic. Today, we're going to provide our own thoughts on digital transformations and explore our favorite parts of the interview with our gracious guest, Brian, from last week, and of course, end with a few takeaways. So, Nick, kick us off. What did you think of our interview with Brian? So, Steve, I love talking with Brian about his experience in the consulting space around digital transformations. Uh, I feel like I gained a new appreciation for the space in the term where, honestly, I thought it was just another buzzword. Although I got to be honest here, Steve, I still have very little respect for consultants like you, the leeches who are pouring millions out of these poor companies who are just trying to serve people better, make better products, and you've got the consultants at every stage of the process just leeching money off of them. You know, Nick, I got to say, last episode, I did not do my profession or myself any justice. You know, what it really comes down to at the end of the day, why these companies hire these consultants is for peace of mind, knowing that they are offloading this black box territory, these digital transformations. No one knows what it means. So let's bring in the consultants who have a semblance of an idea of what that means, who have the experience and who have gone through this before and can with confidence do it again for me. So, you I'm, know, no, as much no, 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 hold on, hold on. You can try to sugarcoat it, but that sounded like a very polite way of calling these people morons who don't know any better. Well, ultimately, I mean, I'm not going to just strain so far and say that they're morons. I mean, they they know their area of expertise, but they they don't know digital transformations in this case. You know, it, it's paying for that expertise, and that's what you get. Yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, why don't we hear from the uh, expert himself? Fair, wait, wait, wait. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. You're going to dial into me like that, and then with a simple rebuttal, you're going to dial back this talk of morons, all this shit talk about consultants. I mean, are you that easily swayed? Have I convinced you that easily? I mean, look, I'm not convinced, but we're not here for that. I think we're trying to look at what are the big picture things. And look, I think I've made my point. I've got very little respect for your profession. You're a bunch of blood sucking leeches. We've gotten past that. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call you the worst name of the book. God forbid I did it. Actually, I didn't even do it last time and you still kicked me off. It wasn't even ad hominem. You were like, oh, man, he mentioned this in passing. He's gone. That was very rude. But that aside... Um, I do want to actually get your reaction to some of the clips uh, that Brian brought up, especially around stakeholder outreach and buy-in, which, you know, you've just sort of <laughs> taken a big dump all over these stakeholders, <laughs> these companies that you work with. You're so, the one calling the morons. Hey, why don't we talk about the importance of outreach then? What did Brian have to say about this? Let's take a listen. You know, you might not have to know the intricacies of the programs that you're building out. But you'd at least want to know from a stakeholder perspective the high-level objectives and sort of the key reasons why your company is doing this. So we're talking about workshops and aligning stakeholders, and that's all great. But Steve, what about the people who don't want to change? Now, that's an interesting point, Nick, because I think with all of these programs, you're, you're inevitably going to come across some resistance. And, you know, ultimately, that's what these, you know, these change management programs, these teams are about. We won't necessarily go there. I have some opinions about change management. But, you know, what it really is about for the people who don't want to change 
there's, there, there's two dimensions. Well, I, I suppose there's really three. The first one is you get this, this demographic of people who maybe have been at a company for their whole careers or 10, 15 years. They're used to using the tools at their disposal to do the job. Suddenly you're telling them, hey, we're going to replace that pad and paper, that you know old legacy application that you were using with a new sexy mobile iPhone app. You know, you're going to have to relearn how to do everything and it's going to be great to them. It's a huge change and it's making their job unnecessarily difficult. You know, they've spent all this time getting to where they are with the tools that they have. And suddenly that is going away. So from that, from their perspective, they're adverse to the change. And, you know, honestly, I can understand that, but what you need to do as a consultant in that situation is really, and, and this is going to sound just so cliche, but you need to showcase the value here of what you're doing. You need to show them that. It's not that we're changing processes in a direction where they're not going to have any any context on what they're doing. It's showing them how we're going from the old to the new, how we're keeping what worked in the old, but we're we're enhancing these processes to remain relevant in a modern era. And you know, part of that entails, you know, that's the change management side. It is making sure that they're aware of the changes, walking them through that each step of the way. And giving them that context so on day one, when they actually use the new application, they know what they're doing. The flip side of that too is, and as we discussed with Brian, is making them a part of the change. You know, a lot of the times when these programs fail, it's because you didn't have that unanimous stakeholder buy-in or, or not even the buy-in really. It's having everyone's voice in the room. You want to make people feel heard. And once they know that their their thought, their feedback, their opinion on whatever it is that you're changing, whatever technology you're introducing, if they feel like they're heard and that they had a voice in that change, they will be more willing to adapt that and to come on and embrace that moving forward. Oh, great point, Steve. I think you're uh, really hitting, the, really selling me on this one. I mean, you're you sound this- so goddamn disingenuous. I look, mean, you're- <laughs> that's because I am, because that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're painting this picture where like suddenly, oh, change management comes in. They're like the Messiah. They're leading the people out of the desert into this digital transformation. It's going to be a huge success. It's going to go great. Your life is going to get so much better. No, we're not automating you out of a job. You're going to be freed up to do all these other things and, and then fired six months down the line. But for those six months, it's going to be great. But no, <laughs> seriously, that's how I look at it. It's like you got all these changes. Dude, all right, I get it. The world is always changing. Why, why do we need change management people all the time? They seem nice enough, but, but what the hell do they do all day? I, I guess that's a little bit of... um. I guess I do know a little bit because I have worked with change management people in a large organization before. And, you know, they do some good work. I'm not going to say that they're completely useless, but, you know, part of it, you're saying, you know, get people in early. And I love how you caught yourself. You're like, so that their feedback is involved in the process. And then you caught yourself to say, so that they feel like their voice was heard. Because ultimately, (laughs) we are living in a dictatorship in these companies and the frontline people who are doing the work. They don't matter. Their voice does not matter in the change. Sure, if you get a ton of pushback, then maybe you want to cool the jets on it. And that's part of change management after all. However, the main focus and the reason these people are in there, they're not to help you, the employee, understand this process and improve it and to buy into the new thing. They're there to say, hey, corporate leadership has decided that this is how it shall be. Get with the program. We are going to sort of funnel you into that road it's like a politician out on a campaign trail saying something and then all their aides are running around like oh guys you got to do this you got to do that that's just how i see it i don't know i could be wrong 
I mean, all right, there is some truth to that. You know, similar to you, I, I, I share a similar perspective on change management. I mean, I think what typically you see in, you know, in these projects, in these organizations is that change management seems to be a lot of the time an afterthought. You know, in my experience, these programs kick off. You've got the delivery teams on the ground. Change management doesn't come into the picture until you get closer to that release date. And at that point, everything that I said about engaging the stakeholder, getting them involved in the conversation, it's almost too far gone for them to really have that voice. You also kind of have this, this, this positioning too, where they come in as the change management group, they're doing whatever they do. I mean, no one ever fucking really knows what they do, but it always came across to me that it's this disparate group, this team that really doesn't have any insight into what that core delivery team is truly doing, what the product is that we're building. So on one hand, I'm not going to say that they they come in and they're just pointing at the employee and saying you have to change. I mean, it's kind of shoot the messenger. They're there, you know, they're not the ones who are bringing about the change. They're just there to help, I mean, change management, a very apt name. They're there to manage the change. But ultimately what I think, you know, the role of change management is it it is to serve as that that broker between, you know, the program, the the corporate leaders who have dictated this change you know, the actual employees and then the, the people who are actually putting this thing into place in between. Now, I think, you know, to really find success and when you find that change management does well is when you've clearly engaged, you know, they're, they're, again, it ultimately comes back to having everyone engage in the conversation, having change management come in from the beginning and set that narrative right from the get-go. A lot of the times, you know, you look at these large organizations, these transformations, and to an employee, They'll get an email six months after this thing is started. They have no context as to what it is before that. They get an email one day saying, hey, in four weeks, your world is about to change. And I, can, I can't blame them. They're going to be like, why? Why do I need to change what I'm going to do? And then you get some asshole from change management coming in saying, hey, I'm Jared. I'm here to help you navigate this. And it's like, fuck you, Jared. I don't want your help. I'm upset about this. So again, it comes back to, you know, engaging, you know, making sure that I think all of the employees, the end users are aware of this from the, you know, well before the program even begins, engaging, bringing in change management from the get-go, having them gradually build that narrative. I mean, it's really marketing at its core. It is, how can I make what we're doing very appealing to the end users, get them hyped up about that, get them engaged, and then help them understand what processes are changing, what they need to do to use and understand where we're going and then get them feeling comfortable about it. So when that day zero, that day one comes around, it's not just a shot in the dark. They, they, they are familiar with it already. They're hyped about it and they're ready to go. No, those are all good points. And I think um, as much as I have sort of given them a bunch of crap, what they are doing is an important role. I think we can both agree they get involved way too late in the process. And part of that, I think, is leadership failing to recognize that, hey, you actually need these people involved early because even though they're not shaping or building the pro or sorry, even though they're not building the product, ultimately you can shape the product and avoid a lot of future headaches by getting them involved early so that you have that feedback. That's again, early, it's proactive. That's what they're doing. They're doing to your point, marketing and internal engagement. But one thing I want to say is if we shift back to the actual change, not the actual change, uh, the digital transformation itself, 
I mean, look, Brian brought up some good points. We are competing in a global market these days. You can't just sit around and wait for other companies to pass you by while your change management people are trying to negotiate with your, you know, your employees to finally get off their butts and use some cloud-based technology, for God's sakes. I'm tired of passing around these Excel documents. <laughs> just send me the cloud. But I, I think to that, uh, Brian had some really good points. Why don't we uh, give a listen to him on sort of the importance of competition in a global market? The industry, the markets, the global economy is changing all the time. And if you're not changing with it, if you're not adapting with it, then who's to say your business model remains relevant? I mean, that's so true. I mean, you can look at any of the top companies, you know, let's just look at like, say the S&P 500, you know, some of those top companies there. I'm, I'm going to stray the away S&P from the- S&P 500 gonna, is not a top company, you I'm idiot. Not saying, it's an I'm index. talking about the top companies within it. I'm going to stray away from the Fortune 250. I got a lot of feedback, a lot of flack last time for dropping this terminology on you small brains. But all right, you know, let's look at a company like Amazon. I, I, I love Amazon because they are a case study in this. I mean, obviously started out as this, bookstore, online marketplace, you know, whether Jeff Bezos had the vision of where Amazon is today at that time, I don't know. I wasn't with him at the time, but you know, it's, it's a case study in that competitiveness in adapting with the times and pivoting and realizing, Hey, you know, we started out as this marketplace We're we're selling books, we're selling whatever, you know, where is the market telling us to go? Okay. It's no longer books. It's household goods. It's the odds and ends it's tech products. And it's incorporating that feedback in, adapting to that. And then, I mean, again, the novelty with Amazon is that they looked at it and said, okay, you know, we, we're just supplying this stuff, but let's look at the whole supply chain. Let's understand how we can really drive efficiency. And as you know, it, it's really the tenant in Amazon. It's whether, whether you believe this or not, after hearing some of the, the stuff come out about how they treat their employees in the warehouse and all that stuff, but their obsession is on the customer. So it's how can we get the most value to the customer. And, you know, they looked at their supply chain and they thought about, well, we need to cut out the middlemen. We need to own our warehouses. We need to own the transportation of the goods. How do we facilitate our massive website? Okay, well, let's start investing in cloud computing because we understand too, not only is that going to benefit us, but we see that as a growing market within the tech space. So let's position ourselves as a leader there very early on, which they did. And they still dominate the cloud space today. So, I mean, you talk about, you know, the global economy changing and really to remain competitive today, you can't be a company that is solely focused on just one, one area. You need to be able to adapt quickly. You need to remain agile, but you need to look at the whole ecosystem and really to remain competitive. You need to say, you know, maybe it, maybe you're selling, you know, beverages, you're selling Corona beer and, you know, you can own that, you can sell that product, you can market it really well. But at the end of the day, there's only so many people who are going to want that. So you think about, well, how can we improve our margins? How can we go to market faster? And then you start to look at the supply chain. You start to cut out those middlemen, own that more. And then you start to look at, too, where your competitors are. What what technologies do we need to embrace in order to optimize our overall operation to sell Corona? And then you start to invest in that. You start to implement technology there. You undergo these digital transformations to harness data, not only on the consumer side, and on the manufacturing side, but on the supply chain side too. And then whether you own a piece of the process or you engage different vendors, you've got to, comp- you've got to proactively look at your whole end-to-end process and really just own it and understand that if you want to remain competitive, 
you can't just solely focus on your, your, your singular product or whatever you initially went to market and you need to really expand your horizons. And, you know, again, coming back to Amazon, look at the massive success that they had doing that. So that, that, that's my two cents, Nick. That's a case study there on how to do shit right. I, hey, good job. I think uh, what you said wasn't sure if they had, you weren't clear if they had the vision from the get-go. I think it was very clear. In fact, I think it was hidden under Jeff Bezos's uh, hair that quickly faded <laughs> away throughout the course of the business through all the stress and the rest of it. Now he's a muscly, bald-headed man. He's wearing the cowboy hat when he goes to space. But I think that was trying to come through all along. So I think the vision is there. And frankly, I mean, look, I'm looking at this from the monetary perspective as far as digital transformation as a business, as a service. And you look at some of the big companies, whether that's IBM or Accenture, you look at you know the Securities and Exchange Commission, their 10Ks that they submit every year for their financial reporting. And you'll actually look through and see in their different market segments, hey, we've like, sure, IBM is huge margins on their hardware that they end up selling, but then they have follow-up consulting services to say, hey, look, we sold you this hardware to enable this digital transformation. Now we have a consulting and finance wing to kind of guide you through it. Or I guess the finance wing is more so for the hardware. But in any case, they do have these consulting wings. And the same thing with Accenture, which is a big IT services consulting company. They've <laughs> That's one of their biggest market segments is it used to be called digital transformation in their 10K, which by the way, their 10K, it's got purple lines in there. Okay. Everyone else is you know plain white and blue. Very, very reasonable. The rest of it. No, Accenture, they've got to be different. They've got to be branded. They're purple. Why is their 10K purple? Accenture, please fix this. Just be normal. Be a normal that's company. Accenture. As Innovating a shareholder, I want to know. Innovating where it's not needed. That's their tagline. But <laughs> no, Steve, you raised some really good points. Um, and I think the flip side of that, I guess, is you mentioned a lot about the customer experience, but what about the employee experience? I know one of the things that's driven a lot of these digital transformations and that these companies like Accenture, like IBM, like others identify in their 10K statements is that due to the remote working environment throughout COVID, that a lot of people have sort of been forced to be remote. And frankly, you know, we mentioned stakeholder engagement earlier. Employees don't want to go back into the office five days a week. They hate the grind. They hate the travel. Well, actually, never mind. Some sick people love the grind. And they to be grind. fair, you're losing out on those miles and those hotel points. I mean, my heart breaks for you. But otherwise, I get it. No, but that's. I mean, that's that's a fantastic point. And you know, it. it you know, COVID was that catalyst that really pushed all these companies, really the global economy as a whole into this remote model. And it changed everyone's ways of working. And, you know, Brian did a fantastic job touching on that in our interview last week. So let's, let's pass it to him. What did he have to say? Going remote is a daunting task for some companies. You have massive legacy companies that have been around and dominating their industries for hundreds of years. And suddenly, you know, they can no longer go into the office. They can no longer work the way they have. And they have to change and they have to go remote. And they now have to go through digital transformations to truly be able to succeed in a remote workplace. So, I mean, Nick, there's, it, like I said, it, it, it changed the global economy. I mean, there were so many impacts. You know, you look at the housing market, that's kind of a, a what would you say, a, a an after you know an indirect effect of covid the, the the increase in the housing market demand all these people moving from you know maybe very expensive areas like san francisco relocating elsewhere because they no longer need to be in close proximity to the to the office people moving into the suburbs but we also saw impacts you know within the environment 
decrease CO2 emissions because, you know, less people are commuting to work, driving cars, flying on the, these consultants flying every week on their planes. I mean, an event like COVID not only affected, you know, industry, you know, businesses having to adopt, you know, more digital practices to remain, you know, to, to, to just exist in this now, in this no longer in-person space, but there was an impact across the board really that changed, changed the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, there were certainly some positive and negative changes. On the positive side, you know, I get to wake up much later. I get to roll out of bed and just turn on my laptop and attend my 8 a.m. meetings, which absolutely love. You know, if you're a project manager out there, make sure to get people in on those 8 a.m. meetings. Everyone works so well on it. You know, even though you're not really awake or well fed or the rest of it, you know, people are really firing on all cylinders. So keep that up. But no, I mean, look, I I frankly enjoy working home for more, but I think there have been a few studies coming out recently where, you know, either companies or academic institutions or think tanks are trying to track, are people working more or less now? And sort of what what's the cost benefit analysis of just going remote in perpetuity? And people are finding that, you know, folks are working longer hours, especially in some of these, you know, more techie spaces where it, the expectation back when you were in the office is, yeah, you're going to be plugged in a lot of the time, but when you're commuting, when you're traveling, yeah, you check your phone, but you're not expected to do much else behind besides that. Now, when you're working from home, it, there's almost like an expectation that you have to be online all the time. And I get that that's not for every single industry. Of course, you know, I love talking about my sandwich shops and I don't think they're expected to whip <laughs> out their laptops from home and digitally construct an AutoCAD, some new sandwich variety. But I, I don't know. I think there are some positives, but I think there are also a lot of negatives. And of course, I'm happy with the CO2 emissions reductions, you know, huge environmental bent on the show. I mean, Greta would be proud. But, you know, I, I wanted to talk about the remote aspect. You know, you talk about the change from work from home, this expectation that people are always available, always online. You know, you talk about the 8 a.m. meetings. And, you know, when you think about change, us all going remote was never planned. It wasn't a smooth transition. It just happened. People needed to do it. I mean, we look at a company like Zoom and I mean, they took off because suddenly so many people needed to leverage a video conferencing service. And Zoom was the easiest technology, one of the easiest to facilitate that. But when you look at where we stand today in this remote environment, and you know, it, it's really, I think at this point, still up in the air whether, well, really, you know, of course, when we're going to go back to work, and it's inevitable to some sense, you know, people will go back to the office, whether in a hybrid model or full time that remains to be seen, but it really has changed what it means to be a to be a worker in the 21st century, because you don't need to go into the office to have that in person, you know, collaboration, communication to do your job. You can leverage these technologies. I mean, we live in an era where email, text, now, you know, video conferencing, it's like you're there. But at the same time, you know, there's the tech side of it, which enables us to do the work. But then you talk about the work-life balance, that expectation that you're always going to be available. And it's really causing a massive shift with these companies because suddenly they're realizing, hey, well, you know, we, we, we remain productive when our employees are at home. And some of them, you know, work much more than they did before because they are just, they have that access, their computers are always there. They just happen to be around. But the greater change, which is yet to come, and I think really, you know, as we progress through the 21st century, I think ultimately at this point, this was a great case study in showing that we don't need to go into the office to work. And, and like I said, whether it's a hybrid model or whatever, it's going to, this is going to, this is going to stay. 
But what we're seeing now is it's really more of a culture shift where these companies need to think about the work-life balance of their employees because no one wants to work 15 hours a day. No one wants to be consistently plugged in. And it's really about creating an, a culture and environment where employees feel that they they're empowered to do their job without having this big brother, having their manager, having their CEO constantly over them, you know, which you would get in the process, in, in, you know, in the office. You're not going to be messing around on TikTok when you're sitting in your cubicle, knowing that your manager could walk around at any time and give you an ass beating. You know, you've got that freedom now at home, but with the same time, there, there comes a trust. And I think what a lot of employers are now coming to grips with is that they don't have that control, but they need to put a sense of trust into the, into the employee. And you know, I'm, I, I go on LinkedIn. I'm very active. And there's a lot of people out there who are really talking about this. I mean, I see posts all the time about people who come across and saying, you know, I don't care whether you have to take your camera off in, in a Zoom meeting because your dog's throwing up on the ground. I don't care that you need to pop out for 30 minutes in the middle of the day to go pick up your daughter from school. I don't care that you need to ditch out of a four o'clock meeting because you need to go to your son's basketball practice. And that's the culture that I think ultimately we need to go to. I don't think every company is going to get there. I think, you know, when you look at these companies within the S&P 500, you know, these companies that have this much more, uh, I don't even know what to call it, but, you know, per, I'm not going to say productive, but demanding expectation from their employees, you know, th there's always going to be a struggle there. And that existed before COVID anyway. I mean, myself as a consultant, I worked remote a lot of the time anyway, but the expectation was always there that I'm still going to be getting the job done. And that's really what it comes down to. It's having employers putting trust in their employees to say, hey, this is your job. This is our deadline. This is the project. I don't care when or how you do it. You know, be at the meetings, be there at the meetings that are important, but ultimately I'm leaving it up to you to get the work done that we hired you to. And that's the struggle that a lot of companies are facing now. And it is a big trust thing, but ultimately that's where the culture needs to go in order for us to remain really productive and just progress as a working force into the 21st century. That was a very positive and uplifting note, Steve, but my heart truly breaks. I think there's a lot of negatives. My heart truly breaks for those uh, poor people. They, they went out the summer before they bought the deal sleds. They were hanging out in the loafers and the nice shoes, the Gonziano and Girlings. They show up in the office. They're, you know, they're going nuts. They're going clubbing. They're hitting up the bars late at night. They're drinking in the office when they've got a 4 a.m. deadline the next morning. They're all under their desks at midnight. You know, some real team bonding exercises that you just don't get in this virtual environment. Sure, you could take a few shots at your desk, but where's the fun in that, Steve? I think a lot of poor investment bankers especially the associates and analysts are suffering in this time. And for that, I think digital transformations are fracturing the very best of our society. But all right, all right, maybe I shouldn't, you know, poke as much fun. They do a very demanding jobs and it is difficult. And, you know, I'm not going to say that finance is such a noble cause, but you know, no, ultimately but, but, good for them, but it, no, but that is the flip side. You know, I, I everything that I talked about th that is the one major negative. It's that you lose out on that in person interaction. You know, flaunting the deal sleds, taking those shots with your coworkers in the break room, right before a big meeting at you know one o'clock. But you that, can't go that, in a separate room and call the client a moron who doesn't know what they're doing. You can't hear <laughs> you that can't. straight from your senior it, MD. It, oh, it, these it, these people are idiots. Just come up with have, some deck. It'll be fine. 
Yeah, it doesn't have the saying ring when you go off on you, you put yourself on mute and say it to yourself. It really doesn't. And that's something, you know, I don't know, maybe virtual reality or AR will bridge the gap there. No, but it's Steve, never gonna be the you've same. You've never gotten a text. You're saying you've never I've gotten these texts before during a meeting where your boss will text you and be like, What is this person saying? Oh <laughs> what my god. Is going I, I, on? I, who hasn't? Who hasn't? This guy's a total idiot. Please step in there and correct this man. But you're totally right on the whole community aspect of it. That is one thing. That is one of the few things that I liked about working in the office. I have some really awesome coworkers. I like them a lot. And I do miss some of the in-person stuff. Um, although video chats are sort of filling that, it, it's not really the same. And so I think a hybrid model would be nice where occasionally you do have team building exercises and you can actually see people face to face. I think that would be nice. But I guess we've sort of walked through every stage in the process. So summing it up and putting a bow on it, what do we really think about these personally? So Steve, when you're looking at this, like, what do you, is there real value to this? Is this all fluff? Actually, no, I'm not going to turn it to you. You're a consultant that lives off this. Here, why, why don't I give my two cents first? So honestly, I, I hate to admit it. You heard Steve mention the word agile and I guess the term, the process, the methodology, but I don't know. I've come around to it a little bit. I totally get it. You know, work should not be a one and done oh, we have this process flow, we're going to go A, B, C, D, E, and regardless of the external environment, we're never going to change. No, you should be able to pivot and be able to change sort of what you're focused on as things arise. And I'm probably butchering agile here because I've hated it so much that I've just shut out the definition. But I mean, Steve, look, you're a scrum master. You know how to remain agile and nimble and all the other garbage buzzwords. Although, never mind, I guess I did say agile does seem <laughs> beneficial. But I know for a fact, like in corporate engineering, some people do really latch onto the term. They're like, oh, wow, this makes perfect sense. This is a staple. People need to be using this. I Like what came before this? I can't believe it. it. It really has defined entire industries. And as much as I hate to admit it, I do think digital transformations, um, the agile framework, and then the change management stuff, I do think it has a lot of staying power because ultimately it does have clear benefits. I mean, obviously, I agree with you there, Nick. But you know, we 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 could do a whole episode on agile because really, it's it like you said, it's this buzzword that's thrown around. It's used in engineering circles. We're seeing it more, you know, throughout whole organizations now. You know, whether you're on the finance side, the corporate side, the finance side, you need to remain agile. And you know, you talk about these processes, and when you get these organizations that approach agile like a process, then it becomes, in a sense, it it inhibits that agility because. When you put in together that framework, that process, you start to, by nature of just humans, you know, uh, you know, uh, habit, necessity, repetition, you you adapt and you'd use the same thing. But at its core, you know, being agile, being, you know, being agile is adapting to these changes, being able to pivot quickly, being able to embrace new technologies in order to remain competitive. And that's what we saw with, you know, COVID was really the the catalyst for a lot of these companies needing to embrace that that mentality. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, digital transformations, they're a necessity. You know, we're at a point where all these legacy companies, these big names that have been around for 25, 50, maybe even 100 years, they're realizing that they can't operate in the same manner that they used to. The ecosystem with with technology, the the geopolitics, just the economy as a whole, they cannot do the same things that they used to do. And they realize that in order to to really become 
a company that's competitive within the 21st century, they need to embrace these changes. They need to embrace these, you know, new technologies. And, you know, tech ever since the 2000s has become this catch-all buzzword for everything that's changing. And it, it's so true. And, uh, you know, again, you know, it, it's a necessity. At the end of the day, in order to remain competitive, you need to have access to that data. You need to ensure that your workforce is no longer using paper. They're using a tablet, a phone, whatever the technology is. It, it's really, it's not about the technology. It's, it's about a mindset, the right? It's a mindset. It's a mindset. And it's, it's having access to the data points to drive efficiency, to ensure that you're you know, your employees, and, and it does ultimately come back to the employee, making sure that they can operate in this increasingly changing and complex oh, world. Oh no, Steve, are you going to say the empowering our people line? Dude, I hate that. It's like you're in the grocery store. It's like, come work here at, uh, you know, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or Giant or whatever. Like we empower our people. And it's like, really? You empower them to do what? It just, again, there's so many buzzwords. I think that's why the space gets a bad rap. But look, you're absolutely right. Companies need to change with this stuff. And the last thing I would say about digital transformations on my end, um, Steve, I do want you to have the last word since you are a consulting professional in this space. Why, thank you. Um, however, the one thing I will say is I think a lot of companies have frankly been lazy for a long Ooh, time. Hot they, take. they purely turn to mergers and acquisitions as means to get new innovative technologies, ways to grow. They're like, oh man, how, we, how can we get into this new sector? Well, let's just go acquire some startup that seems like they've got good heads on their shoulders and then you know, we'll bring them into our practice and then kind of up-level whatever work they're doing without our stuff. But I don't know, at a certain point, after you go through so many M&As, or sorry, so many mergers and acquisitions, at a certain point, you really need to look, okay, now we've got tons of companies that came under our umbrella. We still have this big corporate infrastructure. At some point, you need to digitally transform your corporate business as the parent company. And I feel like that's what a lot of companies have been lazy about. I know that they're starting to do it. But again, for me personally, I feel like there's just been a history of them trying to say, oh, how can we not be innovated, out, out-competed and out-innovated? And it's just, oh, well, let's buy up the new early adopters. Let's buy out our competitors. Let's merge and acquire these other companies. So um, yeah. I don't know. That's that's my two cents. Steve, what were you going to say? No, that's, Closing thoughts. I mean, that's a fantastic point. And I mean, I think we saw that a lot in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it was really about how can we improve our balance sheet? How can we drive our revenue? And sometimes the easiest answer is, hey, this startup is producing insane amount of money. They've got a great roadmap. Let's just buy them and throw them in on our balance sheet. That'll compensate for all the other shit that we're not doing that's not looking so hot. And that worked. But as you were saying, you get all these companies that have all of this IP, intellectual property, that maybe aren't using it. But you've got, you know, in, how many... IPOs have we seen in the last year? How many of these unicorn companies, these billion dollar you know, valuation companies have come into the marketplace? And it's because they are truly innovating. They are truly providing a new service into the economy, into the world. And all these legacy companies, these companies that have been around have suddenly realized that, hey, the way that we've been working before isn't working anymore with all these new startups that are coming into the picture here that are doing what we're doing, frankly, better. And they're doing it with teams of less than 100 people. So at the end of the day, again, it's it's a necessity. And I think one of the greatest you know, things that I, I've read in the last couple of years is around, is around data. You know, ultimately, every company today is a data company, whether you're McDonald's, you're <laughs> Accenture, obviously, or you know, even a company like Boeing, it's having data on your product, your supply chain, your internal operations, and it's using that 
to drive efficiency and really remain competitive. And that's how you beat out, in a sense, innovation. You know, innovation will only take you so far. You've got a crazy good idea. You've got virtual reality. It's a sick idea. You know, we'll see what that becomes, but that's only going to take you so far. You know, you know, you look at something like the iPhone that comes out every year. It brings Apple billions and billions of dollars of revenue. But, you know, ultimately, if you're not putting out these products that are changing the changing the world and putting their mark on history, how do you remain competitive? How do you remain relevant? It's about really just being a solid business. And what does that mean? It means being efficient, harnessing all that data that you now suddenly have access to through technology enabled by digital transformations. And from there, you can really identify what's working, what's not working, focus on what is, and take your company to the next level um, and put out those really compelling 10Ks and excellent earnings reports and you know drive that yeah, I'm not going to keep shilling on, but I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, the more you put in your earnings reports, the more Steve's company can take in revenue through their <laughs> consulting services. So well said. Uh, on that note, uh, thanks so much for joining everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, tune in next week for a new episode. We're going to be, you know, we talked about transformations here of the business cycle. I think we're going to turn to transforming the human mind itself. Maybe touch on uh, magic mushrooms a little bit an app topic, Nick. Again, I'll echo that. Thank you all. And please follow us on Twitter at DCMBpod. Engage with us. Let us know what you thought about this episode, everything else. And if you're listening to this, you know, what do you think about transforming your mind? We'd love to know.